My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 metres, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, it's Tamara. So we're almost at the end of the World Cup, and it's been such an emotional roller coaster. There have been controversies, dramatic upsets, tears of joy, and all the things that make the World Cup so magical every time it comes around. But there's at least one way that this World Cup has felt different. And it's the story of how the first competition to be hosted in the Arab world has brought together Arabs, both in the region and in the diaspora. Middle Eastern and North African teams have done really well, and Arab fans, regardless of where they're from, have rallied behind them. Morocco, Morocco, Morocco. I don't care where you're from in this world, yeah? From today and the remainder of this World Cup, everyone is Moroccan. I'm from Casablanca, you could pick wherever you're from. We're all Moroccan today. First African country to reach the semifinals in a World Cup. This is a historical moment. This is going down in the books. I don't know which book, but it's going down in a book. We've seen it in all the different flags at the street parties. as people stopped for prayers in the Doha metro. In social media videos with people from all over the diaspora rooting for Morocco. And as Morocco defied expectations, beating one powerhouse team after another, becoming the first African or Arab country to make it to the semifinals, seeing their supporters' joy, both in and out of the stadium, you can't help but feel goosebumps. I mean, one of the most beautiful examples of the Arab unity that I experienced in Qatar was I was at the Morocco-Spain game. Fouad Dejani is a Palestinian football fan, and he was at the game that got Morocco to the quarterfinals. Behind me were four Saudi guys. To my left was a group of Palestinians. In front of me was a group of Egyptians. And then to the right of me, there were some Qataris. And we were all so passionate and so 100% Morocco that it was just such a beautiful moment. It is the dream of many to see us, you know, be united again. And I truly believe that the people are united. We love each other dearly. We have our disagreements. We're not all the same, of course. I've never, you know, I'm not going to pretend that we are all the same. We have our differences, but we have so much in common. One cannot doubt that there is a bond between us and we are more powerful together. 
Even though Morocco didn't make it to the finals, their success really brought Arab fans together. The tournament's also given a lot of them a rare opportunity to speak freely, and they've used it to publicly voice their support for Palestinians. People have been wearing the Palestinian flag on their bodies, carrying it in the stands. The Morocco team even lifted it up in their team photo when they won their game against Spain. Today on the show, we're going to look back at these displays of solidarity among people whose governments don't always get along, what they tell us about the issues that unite them, and why the World Cup set in Qatar has brought all of this to the surface. My guest today is New York Times Golf Bureau Chief Vivian Nirheim. I'm Tamara Kendacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hi, Vivian. How's it going? Thanks so much for doing this. I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm curious about how it's been just to be in the region while the World Cup's been happening and how things have sort of changed overall. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's funny because Saudi Arabia is is not where the World Cup is happening. It's obviously happening in Qatar, but it's still, this is a region where everyone's obsessed with football and soccer just like all the time. There's always games on, they're always playing in cafes, and the World Cup is just like the most exciting time for, for the football fanatics of the region. You know, it's like the time that everyone schedules their work and their life and everything that they're doing around the games. Um, and there, you can like noticeably see like traffic patterns pick up or change around the games. Like you'll try to find a parking spot. If Morocco is playing like good luck, you're not going to. Um, so no, it definitely, you can feel like the rhythm of people's lives, like readjust around the, the world cup, which is fun. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I wish I was there. Um, and I want to spend a bit of time talking about the atmosphere of the world cup. So Qatar was knocked out pretty quickly during the group stage, but other Arab countries have obviously done really well so far. And you and I are talking on Monday, and Morocco is about to play France in the semifinals. They're the first African team to ever pull this off. But we also saw Tunisia beat France, and we saw Saudi Arabia, which was ranked 51st by FIFA, beat Argentina, which was ranked third. And I want to know what it's been like for you to watch these games in the region. Like you watched that game with Saudi fans, right? What was that like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's um, obviously people are really excited because they feel like this is their region's World Cup, right? And so it, it feels very special in that sense, right? A lot of people didn't necessarily expect to see this here and to have it here. Um I was watching that kind of iconic Saudi game with uh, a big group of Saudi fans um, in a town called Al-Ahsa, which is like near the border with Qatar relatively. And it was quite a funny day because people basically had no expectation that Saudi Arabia was going to even do remotely okay in that match. You know, it was kind of like a sober atmosphere, like we're going to turn up and, and watch the team to support them, but like nobody expects anything. And then just to watch people's like absolute disbelief and shock and just like, oh my God, what is happening? Is this real life? You know, when suddenly things started to turn in the second half um, was was really interesting. And like, just nobody seemed to believe it was even happening. And then like the sort of celebrations immediately after, I mean, it was almost quite funny. Um, it was exciting and funny in a way that like the country immediately gave everybody a public holiday the next day to celebrate. Like it was just like, you have no work because 
a single football football game has been won, right? Not that they won the World Cup. It was one football game and people were so excited and it was such an unexpected victory that it became this like huge moment. Um, and it was something that was celebrated in a lot of parts of the Arab world just because it was such a huge upset, right? Like Argentina was favored to win the whole thing. Um, Saudi is a team that really nobody had put any expectations on. Um, and then to have that flip was just like one of those moments why people really love the World Cup. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I also saw this uh, Daily Show clip where Trevor Noah was talking about how Saudi fans went into the game very humble and, you know, talking about how, like, it's cool that they're playing Argentina. And then as soon as they won, they were like, where's Messi? Where's Messi? Yeah, yeah. And then, like, the, the Saudi fans, they, like, walk into the frame. And at first, it seemed like the guy was lost, but it's all these, like, Saudi guys. And then the guy's like, he's like, he's like, what, what is Messi? What is Messi? What is, is he here? And he starts searching. The guy's like, is he here? Is he in your pocket? What is Messi? What is Messi? What is Messi? What is Messi? Messi down. Messi down. Messi yeah, he's in my pocket. Yeah. Where is he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they immediately had like a whole, uh, there was like a whole shtick and a series of, there was a meme that went around that was like showing Messi as like a roasted goat on a spit. You know, like it was just like a very, um, it was a lot, people had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it's been really cool to see how vibrant Arab football fan culture is. And these stadiums are filled with Arab fans. Like when Morocco played Spain and Portugal, for example, the majority of people in the stadium were Morocco supporters. And and how different is that from the typical makeup of World Cup audiences? Yeah, I mean, I think what is unique about this World Cup is, um, you know, while it is very expensive to attend the World Cup in Qatar, and it's not necessarily accessible on an economic level, per se, because it is, you know, hotels are expensive, flights are expensive. It is a World Cup that's a lot more accessible, just like travel and visa wise. That's something that is actually making it really accessible. And then the shorter distances to travel. So you're seeing uh, you know, people from all over the Middle East travel to these games and kind of come together in this really vibrant kind of public space, um, kind of collectively. And that is pretty unique and interesting to watch. And it must make a huge difference for the players, too. The, that quarterfinal felt like a home game for Morocco because the stadium's filled with their supporters and they're cheering for them and and booing Portugal. It must make a huge difference to feel like you're playing among your own people. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure the the vibes are just like wonderful, you know, like there's this sense that like the whole region is behind them and, you know, people from, you know, Yemen and Jordan and Tunisia are all rooting for them, you know. So I think that that is something that definitely uh, is unique and special. Yeah. And you kind of touched on this. There are fans from all over the region and the Arab diaspora. And this has become such a major theme with this World Cup, this pan-Arab unity. And what are some examples you've seen of that that have stuck with you? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been a thread that we've seen pull through this World Cup, right? It's been, there's been a real sort of like moment of pan-Arabism or sort of regional unity that we haven't seen as kind of visibly in a while. And one of the ways that that's really coming through is 
through very kind of visible and vocal expressions of support for Palestine and Palestinians. You're seeing people really kind of seize on the Palestinian flag as like a symbol. You'll see it at a Morocco match. You'll see it at a Tunisia match. You'll see it from just supporters in the streets. So that is a cause that people across the region still very much care about. Um, and that has become a space for people to express that, kind of come together collectively uh, in a way that's pretty rare in a region that has a lot of autocracies and that doesn't have a lot of space for public gathering all the time, depending on what country you're in. These are Morocco fans chanting in support of Palestinians after one of the team's wins. And for Palestinian football fans who've been watching, like Fouad, who we heard from at the beginning, it's been really moving to see the show of solidarity from other Arabs. Just speaking to dozens and dozens of people there, you know, when you're walking around with your Palestine flag or kofiya, being stopped everywhere we go, you know, free Palestine, we love Palestine. Um, even, and I'm not just talking with the with Arab supporters, this was across the board, whether they be Brazilian, whether they be Argentinian, you name it, any nationality, many English fans, uh, many wanted to know more about the, the subject. Now, unfortunately, the Palestinian question cause is a bit of a taboo subject uh, in many Arab countries, especially given, you know, the normalization agreements that have occurred in the last couple of years, you know, uh, speaking up vociferously for Palestine or vociferously against Israel. Um, many people are afraid to do that now. And this almost gave one this sort of sense that, you know, it, is the Palestine question now taking a back seat, not just in sort of government minds, but is it really, you know, is it taking a back seat in people's minds? Because people don't really talk about it. But what this did is this showed really what the people, what the people are thinking, what they believe. Um, and Palestine is front and center. December 2017, Nadia Atwi's vehicle is discovered wedged into some bushes at a park near her home. Just want to tell her that I love her. Come back today. I would forget about what happened. But Nadia is never seen again. If I go back, I would react differently, but I didn't know. The next call, the case of Nadia Atwi, available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. Vivian, why do you think people are using the World Cup as a venue to express their solidarity with Palestinians? Is it because it's harder to do it in their own countries? Well, I think it really depends on where they're from, right? Um, I think you, you have a huge kind of array across the, the region of, of 
to which countries have normalized relations with Israel, which haven't, which seem to be on the way to normalization. And then also like how autocratic various countries are really does differ. There's a real spectrum um, of how much speech is permissible and, and what kind of speech is permissible. But say, for example, um, in a place like UAE or Bahrain, which are both countries that have normalized relations with Israel um, in 2020, uh, despite the fact that probably and polling shows that the majority of citizens in those countries do not really support the Abraham Accords or the normalization agreements with Israel and are in fact against them, um, you don't hear or see vocal dissent about that because that at that point has become a state policy. Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain signed a trilateral agreement at the White House today. It was also signed by U.S. President Donald Trump. His administration negotiated the deal. Dubbed the Abraham Accords, it formalizes the normalization of Israel's already warming relations with the two Gulf states. CBC. It's not something that people can really safely express a ton of resistance towards because they're going to be seen as kind of criticizing the state itself now that the state has taken on that policy. Um, Qatar is this kind of unique space right now because two things are happening. One, Qatar is not a country that has fully normalized with Israel yet. So while Qatar is authoritarian, it is not actually state policy necessarily to support Israel or to establish relations with Israel. So you don't have that you know, as being an expression of dissent if you're in Qatar or if you're Qatari and you're saying, you know, I don't support Israel, I support Palestine. Um, the second thing is that because of the World Cup, Qatar has allowed um, Israeli fans and Israeli media to come to Doha and to come to Qatar for the tournament, uh, which was part of the FIFA requirements for them to be the host country. Uh, so you have this like unique thing happening where there are actually Israelis coming in, but the country hasn't normalized yet. And so I think a lot of scholars from the region would say that what you're seeing is actually a more authentic and um, honest and less filtered reaction to the presence of the Israelis and the Israeli media, who in some ways kind of with their cameras and microphones like represent the state to a lot of people or are more visible representations, whereas the Israeli fans kind of might just blend into the crowd. Um, and you're seeing a lot of sort of like confrontations that have happened on camera with Israeli journalists, you know, from Arab fans um, kind of, you know, standing in support of Palestine or criticizing Israel. And these are just things that, feel very unique. It's 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 this kind of th set of things coming together and you have this kind of like burst of collective energy that happens during a sporting event in a way that football allows people to come together around and all of that is kind of coalescing around like a very visible demonstration of like regional solidarity uh, with the Palestinians um, that I think perhaps surprised certainly some people in Israel. Yeah, yeah. It, it's been very visible. Like you see the Palestinian flag um, pretty much everywhere. Fans are chanting and singing songs in support of, of Palestinians. Even when Morocco won the game against Spain in their team photo, they held up the Palestinian flag, right? It's very striking that that's what they would choose to do in their moment, in their moment of victory, right? And I wonder if you could talk a bit about why so many Arabs feel this sense of responsibility to do this, what is the connection that they feel with the Palestinian people? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's been a sense for, for generations that the, you know, in this part of the world that the Palestinian cause is an Arab cause, you know, and certainly that was a, a big part of, you know, pan-Arabism or Arab nationalism. And I think that there's a lot of sentiment for that um, line of thinking still, right? Albeit it has evolved, albeit the, you know, there's a lot of different currents going on. You, you know, it's not 
terribly uncommon these days to meet a young Gulf citizen who actually says, I don't care about the Palestinians. I want business relationships and security relationships with Israel. That's what serves me and my country. And I'm a, you know, a nationalist, purely not an Arab nationalist. So there, there are currents and um, changes happening. But at the same time, it's very clear that there is still a huge groundswell of support and sort of solidarity in a sense that like we all stand together with the Palestinians. That, that is obviously how a lot of people still feel. You mentioned earlier the Abraham Accords and this outpouring of support is happening despite some Arab governments like Morocco, Bahrain, the UAE normalizing relations with Israel with these accords, which have allowed for new business relationships and security ties. What what do you think that contrast between what these governments have done and the solidarity that we're seeing at the World Cup tells us? Yeah, I mean, I think that it says quite a lot. Um, and it's something that I've been trying to say for a while that I, because I feel like there's a lot of um, uh, American and Israeli politicians and kind of analysts and elites who perhaps misunderstood this. Um, a lot of people often present the Abraham Accords as if it's some sort of bottom up kind of, you know, growing story about tolerance or diversity in the region, uh, when in fact what it was was a very top down imposition of normalization by uh, generally fairly autocratic rulers on populations that did not support normalization, right? So it is a very top-down story. This is generally, you know, a handful of rulers and the elites who support them who have put these agreements in place um, and kind of most of the rest of the people of their countries are just getting in line with them because they have to, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that there is some sort of huge outgrowth of support for Israel in, you know, the Gulf, for example. Right. It's been interesting to see the Israeli reporters' reactions. There was an Israeli reporter trying to interview Morocco fans in this clip that went viral on on Twitter, and they didn't want to talk to him, and they were walking away yelling Palestine, and the reporter actually sounds confused. And he's like, but you signed peace. You signed a peace agreement. Yeah. Hey, new friend, what? We have peace. Triangle, Palestinian. Triangle, Palestinian. But we have peace, huh? Peace. You sign peace. You sign peace. You sign peace. What do you think this all reveals about how Israelis uh, see the accords and their relations with Arabs? Yeah, I mean, I think we saw a range of reactions. I think, um, you know, my colleague interviewed an Israeli journalist who, you know, said it, while it was depressing to witness, like, this is not surprising and this is something that I already understood, that, like, the people of this region do not support Israel. It is their rulers, right? And that's not going to change until there's a resolution for the Palestinians, right? Um, and I think, so I think there are definitely some of the journalists who were there um, understood what was happening. But I think also there's been a surprise from others. And again, I think this is because there's been this sort of misconception or sort of, uh, you know, misunderstanding of the situation. And there's this, there's such a strong desire on the part of many in Israel for normalization to happen and to broaden and for the rest of the region to sort of accept Israel, that they're not necessarily always looking at what's actually happening uh, on the ground or what's what's really coming through. And there's a tendency to sort of want to believe the people who tell them, oh, look, the, you know, Saudi Arabia might normalize next or, you know, uh, more countries are getting in line. Uh, and that there there's not always an accurate assessment of, of what is actually happening 
in terms of people's opinions. I also just wanted to spend a bit of time talking about how this is playing out on the leadership level. So we've seen displays of unity among Arab leaders who are at the World Cup, like Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the Qatari Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani shaking hands, wearing each other's flags. What is the significance of that, do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, that's been really interesting to see. Um, Qatar and uh, UAE uh, and Qatar and Saudi Arabia had in the past, you know, few years, a pretty fractious relationship. Gulf countries face a major political crisis. Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Egypt have cut diplomatic ties with Qatar and imposed a sea, land and air embargo. They all accused Qatar of supporting radical groups and destabilizing the region. The Qatari government says the measures are unjustified and based on fabricated allegations. Qatar was like effectively isolated from the region that it was in for several years. Uh, and that had a real um, impact, uh, obviously, and was a very big deal because these are countries that are so close, right? There's a lot of shared ties um, for families, you know, across the border and, and there's a shared culture and there's a shared language. They're, they are really, really very close to each other. And so to have that rift was very um, distressing to a lot of people or disruptive. Um, and that was resolved uh, last year. Uh, but you've seen a real display during the World Cup of, you know, like you said, uh, Saudi Prince, Prime Prince Mohammed bin Salman going to Doha for the opening game and kind of being quite chummy with uh, Qatar's Sheikh Tamim and sort of, you know, uh, you could see like a very real display of that warmth. Um, you know, obviously this is a bit performative, but it's interesting to watch nonetheless. And I was actually more surprised, you know, Qatar and Saudi Arabia have pretty much made up at least formally. So that wasn't as surprising to me as to see the UAE ruler more recently go to Qatar uh, and make that visit. And again, you know, kind of display warmth because UAE and Qatar have had a pretty fractious relationship until even fairly recently. So um, that's been really interesting to see. I mean, it's like been this kind of moment of diplomacy and, and kind of, you know, bringing together the region and Certainly, the neighboring countries in the Gulf are benefiting massively from spillover tourism. Uh, Dubai, probably the most. On the other hand, Bahrain, which is like really, really right next to Qatar, um, and has been part of the rift as well and remains uh, in a very bad relationship with Qatar and has no transport ties, has just completely lost out on the chance to benefit from the World Cup and hasn't, you know, there's no flights, so fans aren't staying there. So some of the regional um, kind of uh, rancor remains. I'm also curious, just uh, just to wrap up this moment of Arab solidarity that we're seeing. Is that something that we might see last beyond this World Cup? Because you'll often hear football fans who've gone to World Cups talk about them with this dreamlike nostalgia as if it was this magical once in a lifetime experience that you won't be able to recreate. And yeah, what do you think will survive from this moment of unity among Arabs who've been swept up in, in this moment? 
That's a very good question. I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I'm curious to watch. Um, I tend to think that the World Cup is a pretty rare space and moment, right? It's it's actually a literal space where people can come together collectively from across the region and have a bit more um, freedom of expression in a very limited kind of way directed towards football. Um, and that is fairly unique. Um, I don't know that we really see people come together in that same way in other contexts. Uh, that said, I think it demonstrates that those feelings are very much there, um, that a lot of people do really still feel a lot of, you know, pan-Arab solidarity and uh, certainly um, support for the Palestinian cause. Um, it's there. Is it displayed or is it as visible um, in another setting? Perhaps not, but it definitely has shown us that it's there. Okay, Vivian, thank you so much. This was really fun. Um, I'm happy I got to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great to meet you. Thanks so much for giving me the time. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producers are Joyta Shangupta and Ashley Mack, and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Special thanks this week to Ali Khalid at Arab News. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. And before I let you go, if you liked this episode, if you felt seen by it, if you felt like you learned something new, just do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this. It only takes a second and it really helps new listeners discover the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kendacker. Thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.